Bob Murphy Show, episode 293. There's a tidal wave coming. What you gonna do? Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews, conducted by a Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey everybody, welcome back to The Bob Murphy Show. Today we're going to mix things up a little bit. It's a little bit different. My guest is Ron Simmons, who's a Christian entrepreneur and public servant. And what we're going to be talking about is his new book entitled Life Lessons from the Little Red Wagon, 15 Ways to Take Charge and Create a Path to Success. So uh, full disclosure, this was his agent emailed me and pitched the book and him as a guest. And I looked at it and I thought, this is a great guy. This is something I would like my audience to hear. It didn't hurt that he's the father of Allie Beth Stuckey, if you know who she is. She's got a podcast that's, she's a very pleasant person. She's <laughs> she's one of the few people that others would not say, hey, aren't you supposed to be a Christian? Like everybody would say, yes, she's treating everyone like a Christian should. So anyway, he did a good job uh, instilling values in his daughter and you'll like his book. It's a very um, nice gentleman. We have a very pleasant conversation and uh, the the shtick is that there's different components of the wagon, like you can be in the front leading, you know, by pulling it, or you can be inside of it, and you know, things like that. So, looking at each component of the wagon and then spinning that into a life lesson. But I think you're going to like this. It's a very fun conversation. Here we are, my discussion with Ron Simmons. Ron, welcome to the Bob Murphy Show. Bob, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, so am I. So am I. I will have already given the listeners a little bit of, of an introduction and the pre-recorded thing, but can you just, for people who are maybe skipped that part and want to get to me, can you just give us a little bit of an idea of your background before we talk about sure. your book? Yeah, absolutely. Appreciate that, Bob. My name is Ron Simmons, and i probably not much different than a lot of your listeners. I was born in a relatively small town. My parents were school teachers. I uh, grew up, obviously, like a lot of people, I had to work my way through college ended up in the investment business, not by grand design, but just because I wanted to see where I could make money and be able to take care of my family. Being public school teachers, my mom and dad obviously were never very wealthy and there were six miles to feed. So it was sometimes a little slim on the end of the month. But then I got in the investment business and started a company called Retirement Advisors of America. And we specialize in a particular niche a client that we served, retired commercial airline pilots that, again, through God's grace and a little hard work, we were able to make that reasonably successful. And then in 2012, while I was still chairman of the investment company, I ran for public office and I served as state representative from 2012 to 2019 in the state of Texas, represented a district of about 200,000 people in the Dallas suburbs area. And when I got through with that, the governor appointed me to head up the state's workers' compensation company that the state controls. And about that same time, how you reflect sometimes when you get to a certain age, and I'm in my early 60s now, 
that I decided to write a book and just talk a little bit about how I got here using a metaphor of a red wagon. In fact, I've got a copy of the book right here, Life Lessons from the Little Yeah, I was going to ask if you could hold it up for people. And it's just about how the different parts of the wagon can relate to different parts of our life. That's me. I'm married for 43 years, got three children. My oldest son is a federal prosecutor. My middle son, Daniel, still works at our investment company. He's on the autism spectrum. And then Allie Beth, which a lot of your people might know, Allie Beth Stuckey, she is a podcaster herself on a podcast called Relatable. And we got six grandkids now, so it's good. Okay, wow. Congratulations. Yeah, I didn't know if it was appropriate for me to bring up Allie Beth during the podcast. <laughs> Because it's, it's no, we're, I'm talking about my book. Let's not talk about my daughter, but okay, yeah. It's so totally I, I am okay a fan. She's a part of who we are. So. The other thing, too, Ron, though, that happens is sometimes I'll have guests whose fathers are famous economists, and then I never know do I mention that, or is it like the kid's always living in his dad's shadow? Oh, and it's, yeah, you, know, you don't yeah, know what yeah, to yeah. say. So, yeah, I don't mind living uh, in Allie's shadow, which I do. So, yeah, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Like the dynamic's different. You're more proud. Like yeah. if she surpasses you, then, then you've done a good yeah. thing. Right. So, I am curious. The question I'm about to ask if it's if you cover that in the book and want to relate you, or if you just want to open it and then we can later, but someone with your background and obviously takes the Christian value system seriously it, and politics is so corrupt. So, I'm just wondering. Did you spend a lot of your life thinking, oh, nothing good comes of politics? Or were you always thinking, no, if the right people went into it? I'm just wondering what made you take uh, that step. Because yeah, I know yeah. a lot of people who just think this country's hopeless and there's no way the last thing I would do is run for office. And I don't blame people for thinking that, Bob, because it's mm-hmm. a very, first of all, it's a very personal decision, a lot more than I thought, because mm-hmm. it's you get caught, I wouldn't say caught up in it, but it takes your everything that you have to campaign and to put yourself out in front of people. And then if you get elected, how you present yourself in that scenario. And so it has a big emotional impact to it, which I didn't understand. And your life is wide open, even in a state rep, which is not anything like a U.S. congressman or U.S. Mm -hmm. senator. But in Texas, everything seems to be amplified a little bit. The reason that I got involved in it is because this was in the Obama years, right? And those of us that are on the more conservative side were really concerned about some of Obama's policies, even though they were federal policies, they certainly trickled down to the state level. Obamacare was a thing at the time going on and uh, being discussed. Our border, believe it or not, wasn't as bad as it is now. But for us at that time, it, it seemed awful. Right. And so I decided that since I had the time that I was going to put myself out there. My state representative retired, so it was an open seat. And I also wanted to, probably the most important thing is I wanted to be able to show my kids and grandkids that public service, some type of public service is important. You can do that in a lot of different ways, but I chose this way to do it. And actually, it was pretty rewarding once you got into the policy part of it, the campaigning and the politics that went on. I didn't like any of that. But the policy part was very interesting to me and I thought pretty rewarding. We were able to get some things done. I I worked under a conservative majority and a conservative governor. So it probably made it easier than if I was on the minority side. Okay. Do you have any advice for people? Because I I know a lot of people who are, they're more like on the libertarian side than conservative, Mm -hmm. but they certainly, a lot of them have the same views about basic matters of human biology and and so forth and thinking, what the heck is going on? Do you have any advice for them to know, gee, what 
should I do this? Or maybe should I try to do something like personality types or whatever you think that would thrive in that environment versus yeah. you might be frustrated? All personalities seem to end up being elected. When I first got elected, it was an interesting thing. Texas has a very iconic state capital. The desk I sat in had been there since 1886. And when you look around, there's 149 other members, so 150 members of the Texas House. I remember the first day I looked around and I thought, what do I do? I even belong here. I come from a pretty meager background and all that. And then by the end of the first session, I looked around and thought, you know what? I might be the smartest person in here, which is a joke, <laughs> of course. But what it is, it's a fair cross section and uh-huh. personality to the way you believe in things. So what I would tell people is to get engaged. OK, don't just complain, get engaged. And I would start being engaged at the local level where the liberals were smarter than us over the last 20 years is they really won a lot of local campaigns, school boards, city councils, things like that. And we ceded that to them. It wasn't until this whole movement that started in Virginia where during COVID that parents said, conservative parents said, oh my gosh, I haven't been paying the attention I should. I'm going to take this back. So I would encourage people even if they don't want to run for office, to get engaged in what's going on at the school level and at the municipal level first. And those candidates or those elected officials, they really do want your opinion. Now, you can't just yell at them. You need to contact them, sit down with them, have a cup of coffee, whatever, go to some of the meetings and and engage that way. And then as you get your get under your belt. If you decide you want to run for one of those offices, great. If you want to decide you want to do something even higher, then that's good too. We need people that have a common value-based perspective to be involved in our political system. It's like my, we talked about my daughter earlier. My, My daughter always says that politics matter because policy matters because people matters. And so therefore, that's why it matters. Can I ask you one quick follow-up? And then I do want to dive into your, into your book. You mentioned there about people contacting. I'm wondering, can you give us an idea of, let's say there's some outrageous thing that the government's doing, whether it's state level or federal, and then the people and someone's like raising awareness of it and wants to tell their audience, here's how you can take action to let them know how you feel. And what's the relative value of calling them and getting someone on the phone versus sending an email? Is the kind of thing that if you're willing to take the time to call them, that's worth 10 emails or you get, you understand what I'm asking? Like to let them know this really upsets us. If I say for the local people, the people that Mm -hmm. are on the local level, the call is the most effective because you can probably actually reach that person. Okay. If you're calling at the state or federal level, unless you have that person's cell phone, you're Mm going to only get the staff because they get so many Mm -hmm. contacts. And so what I would do at that level, it always made a difference to me. I always got a list of whoever called the office, okay, as mm-hmm. I would call, leave my message in a direct but but not angry way. And then I would mm-hmm. also send an email because many times we'll say, my office got a thousand emails on this issue. I need to do something with it. And even right. if you don't like as much form emails, but... We do understand sometimes those have to be done just to make it easy for everybody to get their uh, thoughts out and what have you. But right, that's what right. I would do. That's the way I would handle that. Okay, great. Yeah, thank, thank you. Because like I say, I know a lot of people, That's they try to get direct action and 
people want to feel like they're doing something. And I also know it's incorrect. So I've never been in politics, but I have given advice on certain matters or briefings to like congressional staffers at the federal level. And I do know that they they care about their constituents. Like if people are upset about something, that's not good. Okay. So you had mentioned earlier that the reason for you picking the wagon, I don't know if metaphor is the right word, is because like each component and that relates to something, a lesson you wanted to get across? Yeah, it's really interesting. And and as I, and I don't know, I think one of the reasons that I picked the wagon is because the red wagon is something that most people can relate to at some time. And there's almost everybody had some type of red wagon. We had the most popular is the radio flyer, which is still built today. My grandkids have one. But when I got to thinking about life and taking a guy like me, who's nothing special, I squeezed four years of college into 10 because I was working and raising a family and all that type mm-hmm. of stuff. And I think and my mom and dad divorced when I was in high school. So there was really nothing that would have said, okay, this guy is going to be able to do X, right? And I think there are a lot of people out there that are like me. There's not as many Ronald Reagans or Tiger Woods of the world as there are Ron Simmons. So Mm -hmm. what I want to do is tell a story, but also teach at the same time. And when I looked at the wagon, the components of the wagon all have different purpose. You take the handle. Okay, the handle, wherever the handle goes, the wagon goes. And whoever has a hold of the handle is leading and can Mm -hmm. change direction. You take the front wheels. Unlike the back wheels, they can turn and and deviate, but they can only turn the direction that the leader has. And then you take the rear wheels. All they do is go forward. All they or backward, depending on what the leader's doing. They don't mm-hmm. turn. They don't do anything. They only go forward. And then you take the 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 actual red part itself, and that's where the cargo sits. And if you're just taking your wagon down the road and there's no cargo in there, you're not really doing much good. Sometimes, though, Bob. We all serve different parts of that wagon in different aspects of our life. For example, when I got into politics, I didn't know anything about running or anything. Lisa and I had donated to causes and people that we uh, supported, but we hadn't, I hadn't been a precinct chair. I hadn't done any of that. And so I got, I hired a consultant that was referred to me by some people that I respected. And I climbed in the wagon and said to him, I will do whatever you tell me. I can't lead this effort, okay? Mm -hmm. And I think what happens, once we lead in one effort, we think we need to be holding the handle in everything. And it just doesn't work like that. Sometimes we're just the pusher right behind it. Sometimes we are the leader. And in different parts of our lives, we need to realize that. Sometimes in our spiritual life, we, we need to be fed. Sometimes we have to feed others same way and finances, all those types of things. So that's how I and, I and I do 15 different takeaways at the end of each chapter relating to this and, and action steps that people can take that I think will help them, whether it's financial success or whether it's other type of success, I think it will help them get to that point. Yeah. Well, why don't we unpack the financial success one just on top? He's, I know the economic uncertainty right now that a lot of people, that's they're always anxious about money, but now particularly, do you want, can you share just a little bit about what your words of wisdom are in that realm? 
Yeah, first of all, unless you're born with some type of wealth to start with, then you have to figure out how you're going to create a asset scenario that works for you. And, and there's two ways, in my opinion, to achieve financial security. Let's call it that. And it's either by creating an income or building an asset. And you have to decide that. For example, lawyers, doctors, insurance guys and gals, they generally are creating an income, okay? That's what they mm -hmm. do. They, are, they create an income. In that scenario, you have to create an income, live on a portion of that income, and then use the rest of the income to create an asset, whether that's through traditional forms of stocks and bonds or whether that's real estate or whatever it is. But you have to, because at some point in time, that income is going to cease to be there and you need an asset that can then begin generating passive income for you to be able to be financially secure. The other way to go about it is to be engaged in a business, whether or not you're working for somebody else or it's your own business, that where you have ownership. And that ownership then increases in value as you work to build the company or as you and your team work to build the company. And at some point in time, you'll be able to take that value and turn it into your own asset that will provide the security that you need. That's what I did. And and, mm -hmm. and when we started Retirement Advisors of America, I was 27 years old. I didn't totally understand it, but I knew the people that I knew that were business owners were the ones that were the more secure. All right. Doesn't mean you can't get there if you work for IBM or Coca-Cola or something like that. But I could control my destiny a little bit more if I was the business owner. I went to work when I was just a young guy in El Dorado, Arkansas for a company called Murphy Oil. And I don't know if you're related to them, maybe not. But, I don't uh, either. <laughs> yeah. Murphy I know I'm not related Oil. to Eddie Murphy. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. It was a large company in a pretty small town and I started in the mail room and then worked my way up a little bit. But somewhere along the line, I realized my last name was not Murphy. And so mm -hmm. I was going to have a ceiling that I could get to. And I get that. So that's when I said, I, I really, my number one goal, Bob, was always to leave financial mediocrity. I, mm -hmm. my family had lived like that during when I was young and I did not want to have that. So I was very driven. I was driven to be able to do something that would provide security. Lisa and I always lived below our means, of course, but I was driven to build an asset and I didn't want my name on the door. Because if you have your name on the door, all you've done is create a long-term job for yourself. That's mm -hmm. why we named it Retirement Advisors of America rather than Simmons Financial Services. Okay. Great. Ultimately, like paving the way that you could sell it to somebody else. Yeah, that's right. And yeah. we did that. We sold at the end of 2019. We started with, we were a wealth manager and we took care of these. When pilots retire from major airlines, they get most of their retirement in a lump sum. They roll it over to an individual retirement account. We've invested that for them, helped them with their estate planning, things like that. And again, we started with zero. And then when we sold it in 2019, we were managing about $3 billion. And we okay. sold it to mm -hmm. a bigger investment firm. And the people that were the owners, the seven or eight of us that had ownership, 
were able to cash in our ownership. And that was a good that was a good thing. It was a culmination of 30 years of day to day grinding. Can I ask how you settled on the you don't have a pilot's background, do you or do you? No, what what was no. it that made you focus on that niche? Oh, that's a good question. It, I, I love to tell you, Bob, that it was a grand master plan that I had <laughs> from a little boy. But no, uh-huh. I was working with I had joined a company called First Southern Trust at the beginning of it. And I didn't have any ownership in that. I was just head of their sales. And we were going to invest money for small company retirement plans that we thought the big investment houses weren't paying attention to. And we were going Mm -hmm. to use mutual funds. Back in 1987, mutual funds were around, but they weren't quite as popular as we all know them today. And so one of the groups of mutual funds that we were looking at using was a company called AMR Investment Services, and they were a subsidiary of American Airlines. And AMR Investment Services managed all of the money that American had in their retirement plans for all their employees. And so we're meeting with them one day to talk about using their mutual funds for what we hope would be our small company pension plan clients. And at the end of the meeting, the head of that company, Bill Quinn, who's still a friend of mine today, said, hey, we've got three or four retired pilots that have found out about these mutual funds because they were brand new and they want to invest their money in our mutual funds. But once they retire, we're not really set up to do that. Right. Mm -hmm. And they said, could you handle that for us as a favor if they want to? And we said, yeah, it's not really our deal, but we'll do it. So he gave me the names and phone numbers for four people that had contacted them directly. The first guy I called on outside of Fort Worth, Texas, I went in and met with him and he just said, Ron, these people helped create at that time was a little over a million dollars, this money for me. And I don't know anything about investing and I don't even know who to pick, but I know these guys know what they're doing. I just want to use their mutual funds with your help and live happily ever after. Can y'all do that? Yeah, we can do that. We can help you with that. And uh, getting ready to leave after about an hour, his name was Bob Wilson. And Bob says, I got something you might be interested in. And I'm thinking, man, I'm ready to go. This is okay. I got to go. And he <laughs> comes doing a favor and this is dragging yeah. out. Yeah. He comes back and gives me a list of 1500 other guys, just like him. Names and phone numbers, addresses. And literally Bob, even I, as a young, know nothing kid at 27, knew that was the business that I needed to be in. Okay. Wow. Well, that's for the rest of our lives. That's what we did. And we never deviated. <laughs> One of the other things is you do not need to be all things to all people. We stayed with pilots for 30 years. People tried to get us, well, why don't you go to doctors or go after dentists or whatever? We knew that's business. And that's where we stayed. And that was the Lord blessed us for that, for sure. That's great. Yeah, I had a, I don't know if epiphany is the right word, but when I was younger and I was struggling like with what direction did I, mostly I was writing articles at the time. I didn't have a show with that. but. And I had this realization that, I don't know if you've, the musician James Taylor, and I just thought, yeah, there's yeah. some people that James Taylor is their favorite guy, even though a lot of people, he's not their cup of tea, but you don't want, you know, it would be, it would have been a mistake if he tried to be more rock and roll or, you know what I mean? No, he yeah. has to be James Taylor. <laughs> yeah. He so, has to be our handyman. No question. Yeah. About <laughs> <that>. <laughs> yeah. Right. Good reference. The reason I was asking you about that is I do a lot of consulting and, and work in the insurance sector and yeah. there were a lot of 
commercial pilots who like that would be because there's they fly a bunch and then they have days down and so they yeah, they, would, that's right. they would have a yeah. side uh, they would have a yeah. side hustle so to speak in today's terms yeah. and yeah and yeah, uh, yeah they, and they would and they, a lot of them would do things like that so one of the things that we always heard is you never fly with a doctor or invest with a pilot because both of them could get you killed. You just have to be careful about that. <laughs> and, and here's the reason for that, honestly. There is a good reason for that. In order to be a super successful pilot or a super successful doctor, you have to be what some people call the God complex, meaning that there's a point in time, and I learned all this through them, that when they're going down the runway, they've reached a point where they cannot stop the airplane before the end of the runway. So they have to take off. And in order to be able to do that's a certain psychographic that you're made up with that allows you to do that. Same way, like for a surgeon that's working on somebody's heart or neurosystem or something like that. Most of us would freak out and yeah. do that. But so therefore, they can sometimes take that into other areas of their life. And it can be risky for them. Okay. Yep. Also, too, I thought you were going to say, I, there's this economist, Walter Block, that a lot of my listeners know, and his, I might be botching the exact way he put it, but he would say things like, if you went and found the person like who wins the gold medal in swimming or something on a certain event, probably that person's not also one of the best guitar players in the world. And, he, and, and the reasoning is just because how could you have time to do both and yeah. become the, the master yeah. in both? That's exactly, no, that's a very good point. That's exactly the point I was trying to make. That's right. Okay. I know among other things in your book, you, you maybe just to continue this theme, you talk about how can you pursue your dreams, you make a plan or whatever, even though there's economic uncertainty. So do you have any tips for more along those lines? I, I still believe, and I, who knows what other people think, but I still believe in the value of being the person that's willing to work the hardest, to, to get up early, get going, read, study other people, find mentors in that area. Don't look for mentors that just make you comfortable all the time. You have to look for people mm -hmm. that make you uncomfortable, but they need to have skin in the game. And your mentors don't need to be like your spiritual mentor doesn't necessarily need to be your financial mentor. Or mm -hmm. vice versa, and, and then what? I, and then what? I also, would do is there an opportunity for you to own your own business in some way, even if it's like you talked about earlier, maybe it's a side thing or something like that. Right now, where you can build either an additional income or build an asset, and you have to be willing to take the next uncomfortable step. There's a whole chapter in my book about taking the next uncomfortable step. Most of us, Bob know kind of, especially the people that listen to this, because they're probably pretty smart people that listen to your show. They essentially, in my opinion, they really know what they have to do, what they need to do. A lot of them are just uncomfortable because people don't like to fail. But we have to be willing to risk failure in order to achieve success. And whether that's calling up this guy that you thought would never, ever pay any attention to you and asking him for an hour of his time to pick his brain, or it could be gal, use that both ways, or it's being willing to take on an extra part-time job for a while so that you can save up some money to start your own business. That might be a little embarrassing to people. The people at church might look at them funny, but you know what? None of that matters. None of that really matters. When, when I got started in the investment business, I did not have my college degree yet. I was still working at night. 
And that could have people, a lot of people would have said, I can't really do that type of work until I have my college degree. Who says, right? Maybe, maybe I would have got rejected a hundred times, but who says? And so we have to be willing to take the next uncomfortable step. And the only, only way you do that is if what you're driven for, like for me, it was to escape financial mediocrity has to be a burning desire inside of you, whatever that has to be. I wanted to make sure that my family did not have to have every decision based on money. The funny thing about people with money and people without money, people with money generally don't think about everything in terms of money. But people mm-hmm. without money, generally, that's all they think about. I can't afford that or I can't do this or you can't go to that college. And we all have different times where we obviously look at that. But it's just I thought I think it's an oddity about how the world works and that people that don't have it, that's all they think about. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny too, that with the Beatles, like at first their song was, I want money. That's what I want. And then later they said, money can't buy me love after they got oh, <laughs> Absolutely. So you had uh, mentioned getting a mentor and that you might have a different type of mentor in different realms of your life. I, I think a lot of people know that, yeah, in the abstract, I should get a mentor, but they don't know. And they might even see other people and realize they see successful people who will often credit the mentors in their lives, yeah. or at least when they were younger coming up and that's how they achieve the pinnacle of success. And I think they probably say, yeah, that sounds great, but I don't know. How do you do that? Do I just call yeah, somebody up and say, hey, can you be my mentor? Question. How does that happen? Yeah. And the, the first thing you have to do, you have to put yourself in situations where you're connected to people that might end up being a good mentor. Whether let's say that there's a local, let's say there's a local rotary club that a guy that was very successful in town is a member of that he goes to that every week. You might need to join the Rotary Club. Just and not to obviously you don't want to ambush somebody, but you build a little bit of right. a relationship. So and that's mm-hmm. the way I got to know John Maxwell, who who did the forward in my book, who is a he sold 30 million books and he's one of the yep. top leadership gurus out there. I didn't have any connection to him. Okay. But I went to a seminar that he was talking about and then over time, I just was able to maybe have a small interaction with him, and then we developed a relationship, right? And that's what you have to do, but because I wanted that. I, I knew he had knowledge and wisdom that I didn't have, and I didn't have anywhere else to get it. My dad is a good person, but he hadn't experienced the things that somebody like John had. Same way in my spiritual life, the first person I always recommend is start with your pastor is to be bold enough to go sit down with your pastor and be open and talk about it. And maybe he or she, he will refer you to somebody else in the church that's maybe a lay leader that has a you know, strong spiritual background and what have you. But you have to put yourself in situations and environments where you can begin a connection. You can't just call somebody probably up cold and say, hey, this is Ron Simmons. May I sit down and talk about life with you? You need to get yourself. And everybody has those in their six levels of Kevin Bacon, so to speak. Can I ask you, are there people that are successful in a certain thing, but they probably wouldn't be good mentors? So it's not enough just to say, oh, I want what that person is doing, yeah, but that, yeah. that person might not be good at, at replicating it or might be, may not be good at communicating. I'll tell you what I've yeah. found is that also something that comes naturally to somebody is very difficult for them to teach. And it's not always this case, but a lot of times it's the case. So let's say that I, that I need a coach mentor for my golf game. 
you would, okay, automatically, if I could pick anybody in the world, I would pick, let's say I'd pick Tiger Woods, whatever. And he, and, and I don't know this about Tiger, but it's very possible that because things come naturally to him, he can't process how I can't think that way. So what I want to be careful about is making sure that not only is the person I'm mentoring with educating what they do, but also they have skins where they've actually built whatever it is they do. It wasn't just something that just happened or it wasn't like physical talent that they had or or maybe they had a, a parent that that left them a bunch of money to get a business started. That's not unless I'm in that same situation, that's not what I want to do. But it is a good point in that your mentors change over time too, Bob. Like the the mentors that I have today, I don't want a mentor in a business side that has not gotten to where I've gotten. I need to mentor with people that are much further along. I'm mentoring now with people Mm -hmm. that understand, okay, how do we leave inheritance to our children? What do I, what's the right thing to do there? How do I manage, how much should it be? How do I manage that? So those adapt over time as well. Can I pursue two things? So one is I I get what you mean that I've, so I'm a former college professor. So I had a lot of academics Ron, as guests on the show. And sometimes, yeah, you, I will have a guest who's an expert in his or her area, but I can tell when they're saying so, like the audience has no clue. And I have to stop them and say, explain what that means. That mm-hmm. it's something that's so obvious to them that doesn't even occur to them. But wait a minute, other people might not know this or know that the background right. is. So that I, I get what you mean there. You just said something intriguing to me that is something I've thought a lot about that everyone wants to go make a bunch of money. And then the natural thing to do is to hand it to their kids. But yet we also have this idea and i don't know if it's a myth or not but the idea that like oh if there's some kid that's born with an inherited silver spoon in his mouth you're almost doing him a disservice like then if everything's just handed to him then that's gonna just not be great for them so what are your thoughts on that like to yeah you know what I, I'm think asking? I think it's the most difficult for people like myself that have mm-hmm. first generation created some reasonable amount of wealth and passing that's the hardest for us because we know how hard it was for us, and we naturally want to make it easier on our children, right. right? It's natural. So we have to guard against that. And what I've told my kids, I said, mom and dad started here, and maybe we got to here. And however you want to do, look at that, right, whether that's finances or whatever. But what we want you guys to do is start here, okay, above where we are, but not exactly where we ended up so that you can get to here, but not so much in money, but in influence, right? How can you have influence in your field? And I was talking to my oldest son the other day, and we were actually talking about this issue probably, it's probably been a month ago now, and explaining kind of what Lisa and I think about. He says, Dad, you're already doing that. You've given me the ability to be a federal prosecutor where I can bring some conservative Christian values in the way I look at the law and actually help maybe people that I couldn't help and talking about victims and whatever you and not have to think about, okay, look, I better worry about just going to work for a big law firm and making a ton of money because while he probably will do that eventually or get it on his own, he doesn't have to think about, okay, I can't make the next car payment or something like that. So he's allowed, able to have that influence. Same way with Allie. Now, Allie has done it 
on her own, other than I may have done a couple of introductions, but she's done very well. And so I tell her and her husband, I said, what you have, first of all, Allie, you have a forum that you may have for a long time or a very short period of time. So make sure Mm -hmm. that you're doing the right type of influence that you want to have. And then for you and your family, you take that money that you're making and make sure that you're putting most of that away because there might very well be some point in time where you can't do what you're doing or you're not popular anymore. Maybe you're going to get canceled. Who knows, right? Right, right. In a scenario like that. I, I think we have to be very careful about just turning over money. And Lisa and I have never done that. We do believe it's biblical to leave an inheritance, but it's mm-hmm. not only financial, it's wisdom and influence as well. That's the way we try to handle it. And I'm not, and I'm not there yet. I'm still learning on that. Mm-hmm. I am still learning on that. And hopefully by the time the Lord calls us home, we'll have got the, a really good plan in place for them. So thank you for that. And I definitely agree with everything you're saying there. I guess the specific thing that I'm concerned about, not that I'm personally in this position right now, but I may be, but people who have significant wealth and if they, like you say, if they're going to give it to their kids or something, I'm worried that could that set up a di- like we're talking like multimillionaires, could that set up a dynamic where the kids just know I just have to stay above water until my parents die and then I'm going to get $30 million. And it, my, it, each of it, our- it could for some people, there's no question mm-hmm. that the parents have to be aware of that. And listen, there's no rule that says you have to give all your children equal amounts of money. We had a, I never forget this. I had a client one time who had two boys. And one boy was a hard worker, didn't necessarily make tons of money, but a hard worker, right? The other guy was just like always chasing the next quick dollar scheme. Mm-hmm. And so he had it set up in his will when he passed away that it would all go into a trust. But at the end of every year, this trust would match whatever their earned income was. Oh, that's so, interesting. So if he had a job for $50,000 a year, he got an extra 50. If this guy kept chasing the nothing, he got nothing. And I, so I think you, you have to look at how the maturity and the wisdom that your children have as well. And I do not believe in automatically leaving it to equally to your children or anything, if that's the way it is. Maybe you put it in a generation skipping trust so that it skips mm-hmm. a generation and maybe helps out their kids or something like mm-hmm. that. Huh. That's an elegant solution or a proposal. It's like the parable of the talents. Uh, yeah. That. I like exactly that. That's, right. <laughs> let's see. I've got a, just a, one more question for you, Ron, if you can. So I am intrigued that I know one of the messages of your book is to say, sometimes you have to be willing to say no, even to what looks like a good opportunity to stay on message. So can you just elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, I think that, when, especially as you begin to have some success in whatever that is, Bob, you may be a good example of that. Your forte is obviously economic based, right? Mm-hmm. That you understand economics, you understand finance, those types of things. If some, if, if even the, and you could probably learn to talk about natural health care, something like that, home health care or something like that. And maybe there's an opportunity, but why would you get off message on that, right? All that does, remember, we have a limited amount of capacity and whatever we're not using for what we're really good at, then we're taking away from that to put on something else. It's not to say that we couldn't have been successful at trying to go talk to doctors or dentists. And I'm not saying we could or we couldn't, but why would we do that when we totally understand how the pilot scenario works? And so I encourage people to avoid the temptation of chasing the shiny objects. 
once you know what you're doing, and, and for those of us that are people of faith, Bob, we feel a lot of this stuff is a calling. I always was very comfortable in my soul that I was doing the right thing. And I would very much avoid during my career, and I'd recommend this too, just avoid chasing that next best thing. Don't avoid that. Make sure, I told our people, until we've talked to the last living pilot in the United States that is getting ready to retire, we are not talking to anybody else. And it turned out to be a pretty good choice. Okay. Well, thank, yeah, I was on a, a different show that I host. I was interviewing a business owner and he had a, a one that collapsed and then he you know learned lessons and then had a successful one. And that was to your point, what the problem with the first one, it was successful in the beginning, but then they just started saying, Oh, then we could do this. And then we could do this. Yeah, and yeah. they, they oh, expanded too easy the to rug do got pulled because, out. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. One thing you learn in those types of scenarios is none of us individuals really that special. <laughs> Sometimes it's events that just happen. You're at the right time, the right place. Sometimes it's just the Lord's decided to bless you for, for that particular thing. But listen, I've made plenty of mistakes in plenty of areas of my life. So I, I get that. And all of your wisdom from those mistakes is contained or a lot of it's distilled yeah, into the book. So the book. if you could hold that up for folks that. again. Yeah. So absolutely. it's the book, Life Lessons from Amazon, the Little Ron, yeah. Barnes and Noble. Yep. Go to my website, Ron at ronsimmons.com. And, and happy also, that's my email is ron at ronsimmons.com. My website's ronsimmons.com. But you can feel free to email me. I love talking to people. I've gotten lots of good feedback on this. In fact, I just had a, a elementary school principal in Utah email me and says, hey, I just ordered 46 copies of your book to give every member on my staff. Oh, wow, and, great. Uh, and I'm happy to jump on Zoom calls with your company or your people any way that I can be of assistance. I enjoy it very much. So thank you for having me on, too. Sure thing. So for the benefit of people who are just listening to the audio, so the book, folks, it's Life Lessons from the Little Red Wagon, 15 Ways to Take Charge and Create a Path to Success. We've been talking with Ron Simmons and folks also all the links for what Ron said in case you didn't grab it. Just go to bobmurphyshow.com slash 289. Ron, thanks so much for your time and congratulations on the book. Thank you, Bob. Appreciate it. Have a good day. You too. Take care. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.